So one of the great quandaries in life is that we have this mind, this mind that has so much potential, so many things we can do with this mind. And yet, this mind can also be the master of deception. We can get very adept at putting a spin on life that suits the way we want things to be, how we want things to be. As Joseph said last week, our rational mind can be very slippery. And it's not as if we do this with bad intention that we want to deceive. But we do it through ignorance, through not seeing clearly, through a misperception of the way things are. Because of this, we do and say things in our lives that we regret. We hurt ourselves. We hurt other people. We can cause a lot of pain because of these misperceptions. We find that what we say, what we do, doesn't come from the wisest place within. And it's probably a piece of why we are drawn to Vipassana or insight meditation. Because this is known as a wisdom practice. It's a practice that leads to greater understanding. Earlier in my life, as I tried other practices, and I kept finding myself kind of blowing out, you know, really getting high at times, and then crashing down, um, and then finally hitting a place where I just looked at the cycle that kept repeating itself, and I said, I remember clearly saying to myself, not much wisdom here. And thankfully, I had some knowledge of Vipassana practice, insight meditation, and was drawn to really take this practice to heart. Vipassana itself, uh, the word itself, is said to denote an intuitive flash that reveals the three characteristics of experience. It leads to liberating insight. And this is actually a decisive liberating factor of Buddhist teachings. Today, when I was putting together this talk, which is going to be on wisdom, and for those of you who've been here, realizing this is the, the last of the five spiritual faculties, we've talked about faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and tonight, wisdom. So to, today, I felt like I was kind of surfing the web of wisdom in Buddhist teachings. And because it is this um, distinctive feature of Buddhist teachings, it felt really vast. And I felt a little bit perplexed about what angle to come at wisdom from, because there is different ways one can speak about wisdom from the Buddhist teachings. 
And for me, it was such a rich experience. You know, just sifting through wisdom. And, you know, as always when I put together a talk, it's not just wanting to keep it on the intellectual level, but really wanting to to let it live through me and to really explore it. And in this exploration today, there was times when tears would just spring to my eyes. You know, I would reflect upon something that would just seem so rich, so immense, so, you know, so deep um, in its understanding. And then there was another moment where there was just this pit of fear in my stomach, feeling like I was just standing on the edge of this precipice, looking out, and looking at the implication of understanding this, and going, whoa, can I live this? And then, you know, in the end, I looked at this talk that I had put together, and it felt like such a humble offering. You know, just like this little grain of sand in this immense vastness of wisdom that's possible. And I think actually that reflection is something about how wisdom appears. You know, wisdom often is taking the most basic truth and it's like we see it, we know it, and it seems so profound And yet, if we share it with another person, they might think we're some kind of an idiot. I mean, like, didn't you know that? (laughs) And yet, the living of it, the really touching into the depth of it, is something unspeakable. And so tonight you have my humble offering. Actually, what I've decided out of doing this was like, I came up with one talk that turned into, you know, so many pages and like so much. It was like, no way, can't do that. So what I'm feeling like this is, is tonight we're just going to touch upon wisdom, kind of in a broad perspective of it. Uh, You know, um, just touching into what wisdom is. And so it's going to be kind of the ending of the five spiritual faculties, but it's going to lead me into the exploration of wisdom in days to come. So there really is no beginning and no end. (laughs) So as I mentioned... Probably many of us were drawn to this style of practice because it does lead to understanding. You know, we aren't doing this practice because it, it takes us into great altered states of mind. But we find that it helps us to cultivate wisdom or to uncover wisdom. It takes us on a journey of discovery, exploration, touching into the understanding that unbinds the heart, you know, that helps this constriction of heart that we so often feel become released. And it isn't that, you know, we feel just the releasing of that, but we really come to understand how that happens. You know, it it doesn't remain a great mystery. This is a practice that really helps us to 
know the deepest truth, to know the wisest place within us. And it leads us to a wisdom that translates into our lives. It's not separate from our life. It leads us into a wise relationship with life. It's inclusive of this life that we live on the relative level. This life where there is a Miocian sitting up here. There is a you that's sitting out there. There is a retreat center. There is a world in which this is all happening. And it helps us to bring to that level of the relative, that level of the conventional world, a wisdom that isn't caught in the relative world, that isn't caught in believing that this relative level is something that it's not. It's informed about this relative level, that what we're experiencing on this relative level is subject to change. So we're not taking that to be permanent. It's we recognize that there is this relative level of experience, but this is not the cause of happiness. In fact, if we think it's the cause of happiness, it leads to suffering. We see how insubstantial, how interdependent this whole relative level is. And so we find this level of wisdom, this level of understanding that transforms the way we live our lives. It doesn't deny this level of the relative, this level of convention, but it informs it so that we aren't living from a place where we're trying to find happiness in a way that can never provide that happiness. We aren't constantly trying to make permanent that which by its very nature is impermanent. Ajahn Buddhadasa once said a statement that I think really, well, it speaks to me about what happens as we do this practice, the understanding, the wisdom that comes. He said simply, we find our proper place amidst all things. And this is when wisdom speaks to us. We can take our seat in life. That is just doing what we're meant to do. Finding our proper place. And the Buddha pointed out a path that can be walked to find this proper place amidst all things. He had some very encouraging things to say. 
know that there is a way to walk this path and that we have the capacity, we have the ability to awaken, to liberate the heart, the mind. That this is not something that is reserved for just a few. We all have this wisdom. We all have Buddha nature. We simply need to wake up to it. In order to do this, we need skillful means. And this is what the path is made up of. That which will help us to awaken, to come to know wisdom, understanding that frees us. And wisdom is really said to be the beginning of the path. It comes at the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha spoke about. It's the wing of wisdom. And this path both begins and ends with wisdom. It begins with wisdom because our wisdom needs to have a context to it, a context for life, for our practice. If this context is in accordance with right view, right understanding, if it's in accordance with the way things are, this will be very helpful to us. It will give us support. For example, if we have no context for suffering, when we hit suffering, it's overwhelming. Recently, I've had the good fortune of hanging out with a two-month-old baby, which uh, is quite a delight. But it also shows to me something about what happens when we hit suffering and we have no context. What I see in this small child is that when she's hungry, she screams. When she's in pain, she screams. She, she doesn't know when somebody is going to come and feed her. She doesn't know that this pain is not the sum total of who she is. There's just a reaction to it. It's overwhelming. And sometimes she's so caught in that suffering. And she is actually what many people would call a good baby. Note that she only really screams when the suffering is strong. But I can see it's terrifying to her at times. It's very distressing. And this is the same for us in our lives. When we hit suffering and we don't have any understanding that there is a way out of suffering, it's scary. We might identify ourselves by this experience as this being the sum total of who we are. That's why I think, I know I did, and maybe many of you did, um, found great comfort when I first heard the Four Noble Truths. You know, as a child, 
I remember coming in contact with suffering. And because it was so denied in the culture that we live in, that there was no sense of it being a truth of the way things are. And so when I heard the Buddha, the Buddha uh, speak about it, that this is suffering, things that we encounter in life are suffering, to hear somebody speak about what was my experience in life, it was very comforting. And then for him to go on and say, there is a cause of this suffering. This was even better. And then to have him say, this is not the absolute truth. There is a way out of this suffering. This was even more encouraging. And then to hear him say, we all have this capacity to know this for ourselves. It started to give a context, an understanding that could be a support to the discovery of my own wisdom. So in the beginning, we may need to borrow our understanding. But this helps to point the way, gets us moving in the right direction. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a Western monk, uh, a monk who's made a great contribution to the translation of the Pali suttas, uh, the teachings of the Buddha from Pali into English. Um, He likens this to getting in a car and going on a trip. This is the sense of direction we can get. If we get in a car and are about to embark on a journey, and we don't ask people for instruction, we don't ask people for direction, how to get where we're going, we could end up going in circles. We can make many wrong turns. But if we take a bit of time, we get a map, we ask for instructions from people who've been there before, it will give us a sense of confidence when we make this journey. Living here in Barrie, there's a nearby town, Worcester. There is so many different ways one can get to Worcester. You know, there's so many back roads in this neighborhood. And, you know, if you don't get instruction, (laughs) you can end up in New Hampshire, (laughs) Vermont. (laughs) You can end up anywhere. So at first we need to get, we get a form of wisdom that comes from others. Some form of um, understanding, overview of the path. It also comes in the form of instruction, how to practice. And we have to listen to this. We have to take it in. It, re- it requires you know, a faculty in our own mind that can you know, get a sense of resonance, resonance, hear instruction, 
take it in, and then we actually have to learn to apply it. It takes us into another form of wisdom. You know, and at this form, wisdom starts becoming more engaged, more practical. And moment by moment, we will call upon this avenue of wisdom. That, you know, as we sit here in practice, we will need to be remembering the instruction. You know, it's going to be something that's there with us as we practice, something we've heard. Um, So we want the overview of the path. We want the instruction to come to us as clearly, precisely as possible. We want to have a sense of what is right instruction. And unfortunately, we won't always know this. That on our journey, there's going to have to be a way that wisdom gets strengthened through our own investigation. Because we will make mistakes. It may be that the instruction we hear is you know, not quite clear enough. It may be that we misinterpret instruction that we hear and apply it in an unskillful way. It may be that we you know, just completely turn something around and make a mistake. So in this level of investigation that brings about wisdom, through the application of applying wisdom we've heard from others, there has to be room for error. There has to be room for mistakes. What I found helpful here was to work with keeping an active, alive investigation to keep practicing. If we get caught in trying to be perfect, if we get caught in how things should be, if we get caught in ideas, we will become rigid in our practice. But if we can keep an open, investigative, inquiring mind, no matter what happens, we will learn from it. If we make a mistake, we misinterpret something. If we keep practicing, we will come to know this. And our mistake turns into wisdom. Thich Nhat Hanh uses a line which I think is helpful in keeping alive this investigation. He encourages people to use the question, are you really sure? To keep questioning in our practice, to keep inquiring, to keep looking. This is how we will come to know for ourselves. But if we have information, if we have skillful means, it will aid us. 
For instance, if we're practicing, we sit down to meditate, and we've never heard about the hindrances, and we hit sleepiness, we might think it's an indicator that we need to go and rest. Or if we hit restlessness, have a lot of energy, we might think it's an indicator that we need to get up and do something. But if we have a little bit of information, we've heard about the hindrances, we know that they are a common experience in practice, we hit sleepiness, we know that this isn't, um, this is only a mind state, that it commonly arises, and that there are skillful ways of working with it. It allows us to keep applying our attention. It allows us to stay engaged in our practice. There are many different teachings that we may have heard around skillful means. And so we learn to call upon them as a form of wisdom. We learn to let these skillful means assist us as we sit moment to moment on the cushion or walking as we practice. We will also find, as we practice, that at times this wisdom that is not fully understood in our own experience may come in the form of remembering a grain of truth or a piece of truth, a saying of truth. It may be that we find ourselves caught in really unpleasant experience. Um, Maybe we're encountering loss, and we feel quite caught in it. We're in quite a state of distress. And then we remember the Buddha saying, all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. It's a moment where we use the reflection on impermanence, which which holds within it a grain of truth. And we let it help the mind to have stability to face this truth, to face our loss. I found it really helpful at times to use reflections in this way. Having to be careful to use these reflections in a way that doesn't cut one off from the experience, but helps the mind to be stable in the exploration of the experience. You know, there's a way when uh, we're facing loss if we curtly say to ourselves, everything changes. It's a way of annihilating what's happening. It's a way of cutting off, not being connected to the truth of impermanence. But 
there can be a way where in certain moments we might remember something like, this is just the way things are. And it helps us to really be with what's happening. Now, whether it's a moment of fear, anxiety, where we're in a state of complete distress, and we can recognize this is just the way things are in this moment. It helps us to be at peace and accept this experience. This phrase actually comes from Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is a Thai forest monk. And he once said, there's one thing that would be helpful to have on a medallion hung around your neck. It's this phrase. It's just the way things are. And so reflections at times can come through the voice of wisdom, helping us to have stability the courageousness of heart to meet our experience. And in this way, this voice of wisdom, it is that finger pointing to the moon. We can't settle for the intellectual understanding of it. And that's where, you know, if we, on using the reflection, just went to trying to Uh, settle for that intellectual understanding that isn't grounded, isn't fully known to us, it would be settling for something less than what is possible. But if we just use it, use that phrase to point towards the truth, we can hit the deep intuitive knowing that comes from our own direct experience. And true wisdom is deeper than any intellectual understanding. It's deeper than any teachings that someone can give us, any words that can be spoken. Um, And it's not a fault of the teacher. It's not a fault of the teachings. This is expressed by Pei Chuang, who uh, was the founder of the Chan monastic order. He said, Truth's naked radiance, cut off from sense and the world, shines by itself, no words for it. The deepest level of wisdom springs about from insight insight into the true nature of life, the true nature of our experience. Insight comes about from our bringing a wholehearted effort, wholehearted attention to our experience. Insight is not anything we can create anything we can force. You know, it's common that we hear about 
maybe the stages of insights. You know, the, the common ways that insight arises in people's experience, and then we try to fabricate it. We try to create it. But true insight comes when there's no expectation, when there's no wanting, no desire, when we can simply meet our experience just as it is. With insight, we see things in a totally new way. Sometimes we have insight happen on the level of the personal, where it might be some facet of our personality, of events in our lives. And we may have felt quite limited, constricted. And it's as if we see things from a whole new angle. And something in the heart lightens with this. And it doesn't come about through trying to figure out, trying to analyze, trying to work it out. It comes about when we have stayed steady with our experience, moment by moment. You know, I've watched over and over again in my own practice. You know, there's some problem in my life, some, some way I'm caught, I'm sitting, you know, just with the breath, with sound, with sensation, moment to moment with my experience, then I get caught in thoughts about this problem of my life, and, you know, there may be some feelings that arise in relationships, stay with that, and then it disappears, and then continue on moment to moment. Again, sounds, feelings, thoughts, you know, just keep staying moment to moment with the experience, comes back, this problem, and, you know, again, it's, you know, just experienced to some degree, back to what's happening in this moment, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, It's the seeing of this whole problem from a different angle. Just seeing it in a whole new way. And it's like, there's no problem. There's some degree of insight. Or there's another level of insight where we see into the three universal characteristics of of experience. We see into impermanence, the changing nature. We see into um, the unsatisfactoriness of experience, that, you know, it's not going to bring us lasting happiness. Or we see into the insubstantial nature of experience. This is actually an aspect of wisdom that I'm going to explore Uh, more in the future, so I'm just mentioning it tonight. But this is a place, uh, a way that liberating insight happens, a way that really helps to free the mind of all its constriction, of all its tightness. And this alters the very way we live our lives. So in our practice, through doing our practice, we will find that wisdom naturally strengthens through applying our attention moment by moment. 
as wisdom strengthens, it becomes our responsiveness to life. It becomes what's available to us when we meet challenges in life. We find that we know what qualities we need to call forth in life. We find that we know when we need to act and when we need to let be. We find that we know when we need to actively show our love and when we need to silently hold someone in our hearts. With the strengthening of wisdom, we come to know that which is skillful, that which will lead to the alleviation of suffering, and that which is unskillful, that which will lead to more suffering. Through the strengthening of wisdom, we find a responsiveness of life to life that is based on deep listening. Really, that can allow the heart and mind to be still, to find the innate wisdom that is the responsiveness, that comes from a deep inner trust. It comes from a place of wholeness where we don't feel fragmented in conflict. So our practice is a training in learning to listen. At first, listening to the words of others and then applying what we hear, applying what we hear so that we can listen, we can trust, so we can find a wisdom that is not fabricated, that is innate. And it becomes a practice, a practice of the the discovery of this truth and the courageousness of heart to embrace and live this truth. I'd like to share a teaching from Ashin Utejaniya, um, the Burmese monk that I recently practiced with. He said, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how much more knowledge you have than anyone else, never be satisfied with the wisdom you have acquired or the depths of insight you have had. Do not limit yourself. Always leave the door wide open for new and deeper understandings. Bankai, a 
Zen master once said, the further you enter into the truth, the deeper it is. So our exploration of wisdom, it's limitless, boundless, vast. It's practical, it's applicable in the here and now. It's not in the exterior, it's in the interior, found within. It's something we all have. It's something we only need to realize. The practice is removing of the obstacles, the obscurations, the hindrances, removing this veil of ignorance that covers over this deepest truth within us. So these five spiritual faculties, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, these are the allies that we strengthen as we practice. Moment to moment in our experience, we're working with all of these allies There can come a point where these five spiritual faculties become so strong, so dominant within the mind, that they become unshakable. They turn into what's called the five spiritual powers. They are unshakable because they cannot be shaken by their opposites. We find faith that cannot be shaken by doubt. We find energy that cannot be shaken by laziness. We find mindfulness that cannot be shaken by forgetfulness. We find concentration that cannot be shaken by distraction. And we find wisdom that cannot be shaken by ignorance. So these faculties becoming firm, unshakable, and turning into powers within our minds. Thich Nhat Hanh spoke about these five spiritual faculties by saying, when practiced as bases, they are like factories that produce electricity. When practiced as powers, they have the capacity to bring about all the elements of the Eightfold Path, just as electricity manifests as light or heat. A 
friend of mine um, commonly refers to the practice as simply turning on the lights. And these five spiritual faculties are our means for turning on the lights. These five spiritual faculties all work together. When faith is strong, effort naturally arises. When we have strong effort, mindfulness becomes more continuous. When mindfulness becomes more continuous, concentration is strengthened. And when concentration is established, we begin to see things just as they are. When we see things just as they are, we find that faith becomes strengthened. On we go. They work together. They help us. They're our friends. May we become intimate with these allies. (laughs) So tonight, in ending this talk, um, I'd like to do just a short sitting where we look at these five faculties and uh, looking at them from the place of balance. This is really a useful application of these five spiritual faculties, that at any time in our practice we can look to see what faculties are present, what faculties are absent, what needs to be strengthened. And this becomes a wise way of working with them. So if you just want to find a way that you can sit, carry on your practice, we'll do a little exploration together. So letting your practice be very simple. A way of connecting with the experience in this moment. Knowing our experience. the way that's most simple and comfortable for you. Maybe using the breath as the anchor, or it may be opening to all experiences as they arise and pass away.
Is faith present? We might know faith through its qualities. Where there's a trust. Being able to relax into the process. Might be a confidence. We might have confidence in our understanding of how to practice and in our capacity to do so. We might find faith in the wholeheartedness with which we bring to our practice. Turning up for each moment as best we can. We might find faith in a clarity of mind that is able to dispel doubt. When the mind starts to waver, we simply come close to our experience. There's no room for doubt to take hold. This quality of faith, it brings inspiration. Faith needs to be balanced with wisdom in order to stay grounded. Is wisdom present? Maybe on the level of having some context of what we are doing. For in pain, that we're not suffering for the sake of suffering, but we're applying our attention in order to come to understand suffering. There might be a level of wisdom where there's just a clarity about what is skillful, what is helpful. This supports the deeper level of wisdom that is born of intuitive knowing, insight from direct experience, the wisdom that comes from seeing things just as they are. There's no struggle, no conflict, 
letting experience and the nature of experience reveal itself moment by moment. Sometimes wisdom can get out of balance and the practice becomes quite dry, intellectual. We may know things, but we don't live from the depths of that knowing. And this is where we might need to bring to mind faith. Faith helps us to stay committed to our understanding. Is effort present? We can know effort through seeing if there's a willingness to be with what is. When we get distracted, we simply come back. When we're in pain, we look closer. We find that effort brings a lucidity, clarity, it actually leads to a strengthening of energy. Energy needs to be balanced with concentration or it can become restless, agitating. Is concentration present? We can notice it by a steadiness in the mind that can connect with experience moment by moment by moment. Even when this experience is continually changing, This concentration brings a power to the practice, a wholeness, a unification of all of the energy. But if it becomes too strong, the mind will begin to lean towards sleepiness, torpor, not clearly being aware of our experience. It's balanced by bringing more effort, looking closer at the changing nature of experience. We use mindfulness to explore 
whether these five spiritual faculties are present, are in balance. we use mindfulness in this way, it will help all of these faculties to strengthen, to become powerful and dominant in the mind, thus leading to liberating insight. May all of the wholesome energy of our practice, of the work that we've been doing here, May this be dedicated to all beings that they may know the deepest truth within and be free from all suffering. This talk was given by Maya Shin Kelly at the Forest Refuge on February 26, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.